Turn with me to First John in chapter 4, and um, I'm going to read <clears throat> from verse 17 through to 21, and that will be the verses I'll be looking to cover this evening as we think of the glory of Christian love in the second part of, um, of um, a sermon I began preaching last week, uh, the glory of Christian love, uh, part of this God is love series. Um, but the glory of Christian love, and um, reading verse 17 and through to 21. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. May God bless the reading of his word to uh, your hearts. So we come then to continue our um, study on John's teaching of the practice of love amongst believers, the importance of love and Christians living uh, lives of love. Um, essentially, John deals with, of course, love, the love that has to um, exist between um, love brother and sisters in Christ and uh, between yeah brethren in Christ and um, it's a love that John says must be willing to lay down his lay down its life for the other now it would seem that in the context of first John uh, as I've again said week in and week out that John is concerned to deal with love in this way because he's dealing with congregations with a congregation or, or, or maybe congregations that have begun to attempt to undermine, maybe this is because of false teaching, the importance of Christian love. They've, they've begun to, they've, they're misunderstanding it. They are, they are almost denigrating and diminishing its importance. And John wants to be very clear to these believers. Christian love is vital. Christian love is inseparable from genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be a child of God and not walk in love. Now, of course, John gives a very elaborate, comprehensive emphasis to this practice of love. But we are not to forget that this is not merely a what you call a Johannine emphasis. It's not just John's emphasis. This is an emphasis. John is, is this is this is the emphasis of the very Christian faith. John is merely teaching that which is has been revealed even to him as the essence of the Christian faith. In fact, earlier in chapter two, he refers to it as this old commandment. It's always been the case that Christians were meant to uh, are meant to live in love. Um, he, he's only echoing, echoing the words of his savior, of the teacher when they asked him what the uh, great 
commandment, and the greatest commandment in the law was said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, with all your soul, with all your, your mind. He says, but the, the, the second greatest commandment is, is like, like onto it as well. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and on these hang uh, the law and the prophets. And uh, similarly to what John has said earlier in his epistle, that um, this is God's commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. What does it mean to love the Lord your God? Is to believe on Jesus, is to believe Jesus Christ. That's what it means to love God. And what, there's no, there's, you cannot have one without the other. And the second great commandment, then following on from, it's almost as if you said, if you could pick one thing that marks out a genuine Christian life, if you could pick one thing that marks out um, uh, um, authentic spiritual life, if you could pick one thing that is evidence that someone is a child of God or that someone loves God, what would it be? And John says, without a shadow of a doubt, I think the whole Bible says there's no debate. It would be love for others. Now, that's not to say that it's the only evidence, but it certainly is inseparable from genuine love for God. We cannot speak too highly of this love command and its importance to an authentic demonstration of our faith. And um, John has been attempting to undergird this command with, with a sense of its importance, its value. And we've been looking at this in these past weeks. Ultimately, the love command is sent is 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 vital, is important because it's centered in God. What really undergirds this commandment is God is love, and and John teases out the implications of even that statement. And so last week we looked at John showing them that there's also a glory. What I've called it, what I titled a glory to Christian love. And of course it follows if God is love, if God, the glorious God, undergirds the practice of Christian love undergirds the importance, the place that we, the 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 height at which we place Christian love. If 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 it's, if it's because of God that we make so much of the call to love, and that Christianity is a faith of love, and it's inevitably Christian love is a glorious thing because the God who undergirds it is glorious. And um, last week I was saying that the glory then of Christian love was the very presence of God. What John basically tells us is where you see genuine Christian love, where you, where you see Christian love that flows, where you see, sorry, love that flows from a heart that is saturated with Christ because the Holy Spirit lives within, God is present. God is present when his people live in love towards each other. And we are, and John basically says, listen, we're, we're only loving because God is in us and we are in God. And love between Christians takes place in, in this sort of heavenly, divine sphere. And so it's a glorious thing. And, and John almost goes as far as saying, if you want to see God, then go, then, then see Christians loving each other. And you can see God. Uh, if if you want, if you see you see God almost uh, incarnated for us in a sense. Of course, um, that's not to be uh, confused with the very incarnation of the second person. Uh, but there's a way in which God so manifests Himself, in which God is so present among His people when they love each other, that um, John tells us that this is is a, is a vital display of the divine 
presence. And so you cannot underestimate how crucial that is. Uh, God is in this place. Uh, um, again, very often, let me shoot my uh, some of my brothers and sisters, but very often, you know, people speak about God is in this place, God is in this place. And, you know, they're referring to um, all kinds of uh, experiences, feelings, emotions that they're going through um, during a worship session. And, you know, God is always in this place only when, you know, when the music is going on type thing. And yet, I don't know that there's a, a clearer display of God being present uh, than when there is love, Christian love between two folks. Well, I want to look at another, as I, as I say, a second thing that I think John highlights then in helping us to understand the importance, the beauty, if you want, of, of the command to love each other. Um, uh, another thing about love that John highlights is glorious, the glory of Christian love. What is so glorious about this call to love each other? Um, and um, what we're going to look at in verses 17 to 21 are, in fairness, almost consequential. They're, they're the inevitable result of what we saw last week, or at least one inevitable result. Um, John says, and I'm, I'll summarize it like this, that love for Christian, Christian love is so glorious because it saves us in the day of judgment. It saves us in the day of judgment. Christian love is glorious because if we if we have Christian love, and and I I, I will I will make the the required um, sort of um, I make the the, the required um, sort of clarifications in a moment because we need to clarify certain things. But John says you can say that if you have Christian love, if there's Christian love in your heart. So you love because you're a child of God and you love because God's spirit is in you. And um, he says, you know, you will be saved in the day of judgment. There's, a, there's, a, there's an assurance of that. Um, our experience of Christian love, because it is the result of our experience of the love of God, is a reminder to us that we will be saved in the day of judgment. And this is also glorious that very often, at least in ancient hymnody, um, I don't know how much we hear it today in, in, in modern song, but the, the the day of judgment was referred to as the glorious day, the glorious day. And um, the glorious day of our vindication, the glorious day um, of the Christian's triumph. And it is love that will get us there. It's love that will get us to the end. Love will win the day. In the end, it will be love that has saved us. Right? And because, of course, it's the love of Jesus, not love in some abstract, but because it's the love of Jesus that saves us, but because the Christian love, Christian love is dependent. Christian love is founded on. Christian love flows from the love of Jesus. John wants us to realize how glorious it is that the love that we experience now, both the love of Jesus in our hearts, our love to Jesus, and even our love towards others is a reminder of our safety in the day of judgment. Now, this addressing of judgment in 1 John is a, is, a, is a very interesting sort of juxtaposition. The fact that John is the apostle of love. Yeah, he, he's the apostle of love. Always talking about love. Talks about love so frequently, you know, skimming his epistle will show you this. this love is a big issue for this guy. 
And yet and still, he also speaks frequently enough about judgment. It shows you something about um, bib uh, biblical how, how, how biblical authors position their thoughts and ideas. So that for them, love and judgment are not so dichotomous as to be incapable of being seen in some kind of harmony, right? In fact, you will, as we see, for John, our understanding, because John has a deep understanding of this, our awareness, our appreciation, our belief in judgment is what serves to magnify the love command, is what serves to magnify the importance and the understanding of love. You can't separate those two things. You can't even understand the glorious love of God. And then, and, and, and so correspondingly, your call to love, apart from um, also understanding what that means for judgment. And so it's in, interesting juxtaposition, um, uh, but John is constantly referring to that in, the, in his chapter, how in his epistle, um, I'll say one more thing and then I'll tell you my headings. Um, He's constantly referring to this, to judgment in his epistle, this eschatological hope, what will happen at the end. And I think one, one reason is this. John is dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with false teaching. He's dealing with people who are deceiving some, who are drawing men and women away from Christ. And I think John is, it, by referring to the end often enough, by speaking about the future, the parousia, the, that's the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, by speaking of the of a Christian eschatology, by having that those lenses present, number one, John is representing and presenting the Orthodox faith, the Christian faith. Because as I've, I've said this a number of times in the series, the, the the way to respond to fundamental way to respond to false teaching is to present the truth, is to present uh, orthodoxy in the face of heterodoxy, right? To present. Uh, the truth in the face of falsehood. Um, now that's one thing, but I think another thing is because, and John has certainly used it this way, is that John has used it to show that the, uh, the apostolic faith, the apostolic message is the message of the truth because it actually saves in the end. It actually brings us to genuine salvation whether it's judgment, whether it's this world passing away and eternal life, it actually saves in the end. It makes us ready for the coming of Christ. It makes us ready for the day of judgment. Um, and it ushers us into joy. This is the faith that really makes, that really assures us that when all is said and done, we will end in joy and not in destruction. That's the matter of the fact. Now, these other faiths, these other things that these guys are saying, yeah, for a moment they might look intriguing. For the moment they might be excelling. For the moment they might appear satisfying, but that's only a temporary satisfaction. It's temporary. And so how can that be? And so isn't that evidence that this is counterfeit? This is a faith that when we believe it, in the end, it saves us in the end. Saves us in the end. You know, the, the story. This is, this is what happens at the end. This is what happens at the end. Happily ever after. This is what leads us to happily ever after. This faith. Uh, in, in the wonderful hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, the hymn writer says, with, with mercy, 
and with judgment, my web of time he wove. Um, and A, the dew of sorrow was lusted with his love. And he, he's referring to how, and, and he says, I'll bless the, ha the hand that guided. I'll bless the hand that planned when I'm robed where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land. And, and the meaning, I, I call that hymn because the hymn writer is basically saying, listen, life was sometimes seen topsy-turvy, at least from my point of view. There's ups, ups and downs, and there was sorrows. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove. And the dews of sorrow, there were times when I was in sorrow, but he never let me forget that he still loved me. I'm getting into my text now. There was times when there was sorrow, but uh, he continued to shower me with his love. And I, I was going up and down, but he never let me forget that he loved me. But I will bless the hand that guided. I will bless the hand that planned. When I'm robed where glory dwells in Emmanuel's land, in the end, when I see what was behind all his planning, when I see what he meant, what he was doing, I'll say, Thanks, eternal thanks to thee. Um, and this is why, this is why, and this, this is why this faith, the Christian faith, this is what this this is this is one of its the evidences that this is the is Jesus Christ is the only way, is, is what he does for us in the end. Um, let me read out the, the headings to you, and I will say a few things under each one. Um, the glory of Christian love. Um, and and how and 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 that glory depicted in the fact that it says in the day of judgment three headings. Firstly, the love of God in Christ Jesus gives us confidence in the day of judgment. Secondly, the love of God in Christ Jesus frees us from the fear of condemnation in the day of judgment. Firstly, it 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 it. it uh, it gives us confidence. It gives us boldness. It shows us that we can be confident in the day of judgment. Secondly, it frees us from the fear that we may be condemned in the day of judgment. And thirdly, the love of God in Christ Jesus calls us to obedience of the command to love our neighbor. The love of God in Christ Jesus calls us to obedience of the command to love our neighbor. And so, first thing then, that the love of God in Christ Jesus gives us confidence in the day of, of judgment. This is the glory of Christian love. Right, people might have a lot to say about the importance of what love does and what love is, but this is this is how we understand it. And this is the Christian hope that the life of love we live, because as I said earlier, the life of love we live because it is dependent on, connected to the love of God in Christ Jesus, is a is a love that will even free us and save us in the day of judgment. By this, John says in verse 17, our love is made perfect so that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. And what um, John is saying there is that in verse 17, so by this is a connection to what he said in, in just verse 16. And John is saying there that as we obey the love command because we are Christians, and we realize that this is God, this is God in us. God is doing this in us. It's God in us making us love others. And um, it's because we we actually know God's love that now we because we know God's love and we respond by loving him, that now we love others. And and so God's 
is at work in us, John says, you know, God is going to perfect this work of love. He's going to perfect this work of love by continuing to abide in you by his love, by continuing to reveal his love to you, and by continuing to keep you in his love by making you love others. That's a sanctification point. Okay, it's a sanctification point. There's a, there's a sense in which God, absolutely God's love is eternal and unconditional. And yet there's a sense in which that unconditional love lays upon us some conditions. And those conditions include loving others. And as we love others, we get the assurance. We, ex we, 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 we are reminded that the work of grace is in us. And we're reminded that God has loved us. And John is saying this this uh this inter this this relationship this experience this overlapping uh intersecting experience of love is evidence of god fulfilling his love in you and he's going to perfect his love in you he who began a good work in you will complete it and you will finally see how this work of love that he had begun through that he began in you when he sent his spirit in your heart to bear witness to the death of Jesus Christ is going to ultimately usher in you being bold in the day of judgment. This is the glory of Christian love. You've probably heard it said that um, 10 out of people die as a way of highlighting the absolute certainty of death. You know what's more certain than death? Judgment. In fact, we can query <laughs> that um, statistic that 10 out of 10 people die, right? If you look at the broad span of human history, Enoch, Elijah. In fact, not just them, but some that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, who will not die, but may be transformed if they meet the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, meets them on this earth. So in one sense, maybe for some people even, death might not be a certain thing. What is definitely certain, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. One day, God will judge this world and he will judge the world in his son. The same Jesus whose sacrifice of love will save the world is the same Jesus whose righteousness and justice will condemn the world. And this is a tension that perhaps no other author understands or at least uh, fleshes out for us in the scriptures, like John himself. It's a, it's, it's a tension that's very present in his gospels, for example. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? That's not why God, God doesn't want to condemn the world. The, Jesus Christ didn't come to condemn you, and yet in rejecting him, the world condemns itself, but not in some kind of abstract um abstract manner but in the sense that the world brings itself under his own on the christ's um righteous judgment and one day 
because the father has given to the son the right to judge. The father judges no one. It's the son who judges. One day, as we read in, um, we read in, uh, in Matthew 25 earlier, the, 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 the judgment of the sheep and the goats and those who will be ushered into the um, right hand of the father, as it were. Jesus Christ will one day come to judge the world. And this judgment um, is a judgment that either ushers issues out in vindication or condemnation. Some will be vindicated, saying, Lord, when did we do what you said we did? And it's a language of grace, really. By God's grace, many will be vindicated. But because they've spurned and rejected God's grace, many will be condemned. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, the judgment day is the vindication of Jesus Christ himself, the vindication of God himself. God's vindicating the fact that he was right to curse the world. God's vindicating the fact that he never slept when this world continued to perpetuate its injustice. Ever since Cain brutally murdered his brother, God had been waiting to execute vengeance on those who continue to stain, who continue to tarnish his world with their iniquities. He does not sleep. Even in death, the blood of Abel cried to the God of heaven and earth who always hears. And the day will come when God will set right every injustice. Is that not our hope? No one will escape the all-seeing eye of God. No one will be able to evade justice by abusing their privilege. No one will be able to evade justice through corruption. God is not asleep to the injustices that pervade this world. In fact, God is angry. That's why recently, in the recent riots we saw in the United States, and we cannot, we don't know the intents of everybody who's involved in the rioting, but one thing that was apparent was the anger. The anger that injustice stirs up. I'm no, by no way condoning uh, destructive behavior. I'm not, by, by, by no way uh, wanting to condone violence. But I certainly condone the rage. God is angry with sin. God is angry with injustice. But my friends, he's also the only God who can make it right. He's the, also the only God who can bring vindication. And uh, God is so angry, in fact, <laughs> um, that one day he will, purge, he will destroy the world. He will purge it of all its iniquity. Maybe that's one reason why um, our anger must not issue out in riots, because that's God's business to destroy the world, not ours. But if you think that what these uh, rioters have done in recent weeks is bad enough, and you're, 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 you think that, that oh, that's, that's a display of anger. Imagine the display of a God, the anger of a God who says, I'm going to destroy this whole world as I made it. And he, he threatened that once in the flood, he will do it again. And so every act of injustice, brothers and sisters, let it be a reminder to us ultimately why there is a day of judgment. And people say, where is God? Is, is God asleep? Of course he's not asleep. 
God is so aware of injustices in the world. He's so aware of sins in the world. He's so aware of wickedness in the world that he is, he is, he is, he is determined that there will be a day of judgment when everyone will be summoned to give account before the God of heaven. And nobody will escape the punishment um, they deserve. Nobody will evade justice. There is a judge in the universe, and Abraham reminds us the judge will of the of the of the of heaven and earth will do right. But John does not simply articulate a doctrine of judgment here. His 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 ultimate aim is not simply to say there's a day of judgment. He reminds us of that. All of us, our destiny is to face God and judgment day. He says something curious about the Christian and his experience of God's love. He said. We, because of God's love at work in us, because of how God perfects his work of love in us, and if you're a Christian, God is just at work in you to make you more loving by making you realize more of his love. Because that is going on in you, finally you're going to see it in its fullness, John says, when you can stand confident before God in the day of judgment. This is an interesting thing for John to say. Why is confidence a thing? Why is boldness a thing? Well, the contrast with this actually is, in, is highlighted for us in John's epistle itself. In 1 John 2 and verse 28, John tells us that uh, we should abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Or as the KJV translates it, not be ashamed before him. The opposite then of boldness and confidence here is shame. And just like there are sheep and goats, metaphorical, in Matthew 25, there are those who will be bold and brave, confident, and those who will be ashamed. You know who is ashamed when they stand before justice? Those who have perpetuated injustices. You know who's ashamed when they stand before holiness and righteousness? Those who themselves have sinned. Those who know that if the evidence has been properly collated, if the evidence is properly ordered, I am guilty. And so you know who those who are ashamed on the day of judgment? Those who are going to face condemnation. Those who fear that they may be condemned because, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Let me say this. I have no right that God will right every wrong that has ever been done in his world by bringing justice. But the question still has to be asked. On which side will you and I be? On the side of the sheep? side of the goats? Of course... I believe that God will call the wicked of this world. He'll call them to the judgment bar and, and they will all face his wrath. They will all face his righteous punishment. And ultimately, they will be punished because they have sinned against the holy God. And none of them are perfect. And none of them are righteous. Righteousness is a standard of a holy God. Now, how many, which one of us 
are going to be able to face that day with boldness if righteousness, if perfection, if holiness, if love of God is the standard, is the measure. The frightening thing about justice, friends, is that when we all think of it, if injustice is sinning against the almighty God, then all of us are deserving of condemnation. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God's righteousness, if, if God is holy and God is perfect, how can men and women stand before him boldly, which, in, in, which indicates that they're not afraid of judgment? It almost says, God is going to search me and I'm going to be fine. There's nothing that's going to, that's going to appear to be, have been done wrong by me. How is that even possible? John makes that very clear. We're going to have confidence in the day of judgment. We know where we're going in the day of judgment. Can you, you know, that was, can, can you, how, how do you answer that question? What's going to happen to you when you stand before God in the day of judgment? Can I say to you that if you respond by saying, I'm not actually sure, it's because you haven't believed the gospel. If you believe and are believing the gospel, John says in verse 17, as he is, so are we in this world. As he is, so also are we in this world. John says we're going to have confidence in the day of judgment because... <laughs> We are one with the judge. Jesus Christ is the one doing the judging, and we are one with him. He, he, he's he, he's given us the answers for the test that judgment will bring. He's taking the test for us. And so the life we now live in this world, we live by faith in the Son of God. So for Christians, all that's happening on the day of judgment is when we get to the seat, if, if, if you picture it and we get before, before the judge and we stand before him, Jesus Christ, who is our life, has appeared. In fact, Paul goes as far as saying, don't you know we will judge angels? And that's a complicated text to interpret. But it's not far, too far-fetched to say that in one sense, Judge John, oh sorry, Paul refers to our union with Christ, which means that we are even uh, we're even called to um, partake in his great meeting out of justice. So we are actually one with the judge, and our appearing before that judgment seat of Christ is only our appearing to be vindicated, our appearing to be. To, to, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's our appearing to be ushered into glory. So the judgment day for us is not a frightening thing. We approach it with boldness. We approach it with confidence. We, in one sense, we cannot wait for that day. And our confidence is that our, the judge is our friend. Our confidence is that... Um, the judge has taken on our human nature and he has given us his Holy Spirit so that his life is formed in us. 
Um, he has loved us. He gave himself for us. He continues to intercede for us. This is who, this is who we're going to appear before, John says. You're appearing before the person who, who your whole life you've been praying to and saying, cover my sin. So you know he's already sorted you out. You know that. The, the, the sin that, that, that would separate you from your God, he's already dealt with. This is the judge who John says is the propitiation for our sins. He's the wrath warder. He takes away the wrath of God by doing what? By taking the punishment of sin on himself. This is my judge. The judge I'm finally appearing for is the judge that for my entire life was reassuring me that he will never let my sin have dominion over me. The judge that for the entirety of my life has been telling me, I died for you. Your sins are purged. Your sins are washed away. Because I live, you live. Because I'm the son, you have been made children of God. So how can we be afraid on the day of judgment? We approach with confidence, with boldness. The outcome is certain. Because as he is, so are we in the world. Not because of what we are, but because of who he is. The second heading says the love of God in Christ Jesus frees us from the fear of condemnation in the day of judgment. The love of God of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus frees us from the fear of condemnation in the day of judgment. Here, if you want, John moves from, if you want, just the, uh, 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 what is a, a theological statement about judgment to teasing out one significant implication about the effects of judgment, right? And, and, and the, the, the implication is this. One of the significant sort of experiences that happens with judgment is this fear. Those who, those who anticipate judgment are afraid. Adam said, we heard your voice and were afraid because we were naked. The sight of judgment means that we are afraid and so try to hide from God. It's not what love does. It's not what love does. Because the love of God in Christ Jesus is perfected, is perfected in us, there is no fear for us in our relationship with God. There is only love. We don't have to hide from him then. You can't hide from someone who you love. Love wants to, be no wants to know and be known. But the opposite of John, of love, John says here, is fear. And so John teases out one ramification to help us. He's being a physician of the soul here. John is saying, don't you see that people live in fear of God, in a kind of slavish fear? There is a fear of God that is appropriate. You know, there is, a, there, is a, there is a sense that we know God is great and God is so glorious. And so we should, uh, we should, we should be in awe of him. We have to listen to everything he says. It's that kind of fear. It's a, it's a fear that's often translated as reverence. This fear that John has in here, he's speaking about here, is certainly is the opposite of love. It's a fear that springs also from a sense of enmity between you and that person. And so you cannot imagine that that person is in your favor. 
if God is great and he is, but he's my enemy, then I can only be afraid of what he will do to me. I can't have no confidence in him. I can't be, can't trust him. I can't because I'm because I feel like I we're at enmity, and everyone knows that. Sinners know that we're at enmity. That's why that's why atheism is so popular today. Anything to try and get away from this God. Because if I have to think about him and think of his holy standards and think of his righteousness, all that happens is fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, I'm afraid because, as John says, fear has torment. Fear has torment. That is, sorry, well, that, that is better translated still. Um, I was reading my KJV there, but the, 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 an easier translation for us certainly is that uh, um, fear has punishment in it. There's punishment in fear. Now, most likely in the context of first chapter of, of, of first John chapter four, the, the likelier interpretation is, or maybe the foremost interpretation is, those who fear God fear Him because they are afraid of His punishment. And when they think of God, they can't. Now, now it's possible for us to contrive an understanding of God that takes away that reality, but. All in all, when, we, when we're face to face with the holy God of the Bible and we see his goodness and we know that we spurn his, his goodness, we see his righteousness, we know we've turned away from his righteousness, then there is a certain fear. But, you know, John is also dealing with the assurance that believers can have. He says there is no fear in love, though. Our relationship with God is grounded on this experience of eternal love his love to us that awakens our love to him and that springs forth in our love to others and love has nothing to be afraid of in fact love throws out it casts out it banishes fear there's no affair of punishment. He's on my side. He loves me. My song is love unknown, says one hymn. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they may lovely be. That's an absolute perfect summary of what we are saying here. Our song is a loving response to the God who has first loved us. This is one Simple, and we can make it overly simplistic and ignore the context of love and how love is grounded in the cross and how love is a response of the work of the Spirit in us. I'm going to say that in a moment. But when all those things are placed in their proper foundational place, this is one thing we can say about the Christian faith. The uniqueness about the Christian's relationship with his God is that he genuinely, she genuinely loves God. We do what we do from a place of love to him, not a place of fear. We rejoice in him. He has cared for us. He has loved us. And we've never known a love like this. But this is not just a love that pulls us. It's a love that transforms us so that we see what is truly beautiful. And this God is altogether lovely. 
And our worship comes from love. And our praying comes from love. And our righteous living comes from love. And we choose to avoid sexual immorality because of love. We choose to avoid anger because of love. We choose to be humble because we love him. We choose to lay our lives down for the brethren because we it's love that's in the mix. Everything is conditioned and controlled and controlled by love. This is where Christians have often spoken about the distinction between delight and duty. And I don't think we should make too vast a dichotomy. I, I think we should probably marry them and say we do our duties out of delight. But Christians have made those distinctions to try and address the fact that there are some people who just serve God out of a sense of just duty. I have to do this to earn something. I have to do this to impress him. I, I'm doing this because of fear. I'm afraid. That's another way to do it. Some people are afraid of God and so run away from him. Some, some people are so afraid of God that they, 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 they serve him from a slavish fear, from a place of fear. And um, John tells us that ultimately the crowning, the crowning uh, disposition in the believer's relationship to God is love. I love him. He first loved me. Do you love him? That's a serious question. Do you love Bible says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Do you love this Jesus? My Jesus, I love you. Or do you just love community? Or do you just love the morality? Have you ever really loved him? Our love is not perfect. One hymn writer says, Lord, this is my chief complaint. My love is weak and faint, as uh, again, in, in the wonderful hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, the hymn writer says, weak is the effort of my heart. My warmest thought is cold, but when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. But friends, do we love him because he first loved us? That's what John says in verse 19. Lest you think this becomes an opportunity to boast. He says, we love him because he first loved us. And that kind of love, that love that is driven by the grace of God demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus, it gets rid of fear. And I spent the last few hours feeling afraid, I have to say. And I, and I say this even though this is in the context of, judgment, of, the, of the day of judgment. But it's not just the reality of experiencing judgment in the final day, which is absolutely there, but even in the reality of how we feel about God's disposition towards us now. And you know, friends, in the, in the last few hours where, I've, where I felt fear at the misery in this world, at the, 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 the wickedness, the hatefulness, I felt that as so many, as I said in the opening of this sermon today are so many I'm sure of, 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 of you especially in the black community have felt they felt, we felt the hatred and, I, and I'm sure even um, uh, some of our of our, of our non-black brothers and sisters also you you feel something of, of 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 the fear that is in this world but my friends this is a love that casts out fear this is a love that keeps us safe. I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in the, in, in the next few days. History recall, re, re, history indicates that riots have never really changed much as far as this situation is concerned. And we can't speak, we can't speak perfectly to any situation. We don't know how we're going to leave this present world. What we do know is that there is a love that will not let us go. And that can 
alleviate our fears. God is on the throne and God loves us. And my friends, we serve our God from this place of love. He loves me. Verse 19, we love him. Well, the 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 the, um, the referent him is not actually there. So um, the original reads, uh, the, the, the best original reading reads, we love because he first loved us. But the context seems to indicate um, that he's referring to love for God because in verse 20 he goes on to say, but if a man, no, not but, but it seems that that's the implication. If a man say, I love God. And so um, John's saying, we love him because he first loved us. And that love, that kind of love, it casts out fear. Now, let me say, there are times when Christians, maybe because we're living in disobedience, there are times when um, just because we're sinners, we, we do feel the fear. The amazing thing is th th there are times when we don't seem to want to serve him from a place of delight. Why don't I want to pray to him? He's my father. And Prayer is such a heavy work. Why, why is it such burdensome work? I can spend hours and everything else, but to pray and to unlock the keys of heaven, as it were, is, is, is burdensome for me. And why don't I want to meditate on the scriptures and read it day and night? Like, like David says, uh, and uh, why don't I want to be with God's people and speak about the things of God with them and sing with them and worship with them? And we feel that, right? We say, where's the love? Do I not love him? Because our love is weak. And those times do happen. And at that point, sometimes we do feel the fear. And God maybe even uses the fear of showing us, this is what would happen to you without me. So there's a place for that, perhaps, when God shakes our heart to think, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Apart from you, we, we're destructive. But that's never the controlling way in which this believer relates to the Christian. It's never the controlling way. I've experienced what it is to be motivated by the fear of hell. We only get you so far. There's nothing like being moved by the fact that he has loved me, he's loved you, and he has called us to love him. Well, what a privilege. What a privilege, my friend, my brothers and sisters. What a privilege that those of us, we have set our affection on some of the most despicable things in this world. Why should he want my love? Many people will testify to how weak and faint our love is. How fleeting, how frail, how unpredictable, how cold it gets. And yet he calls me to love him. Why would he want my love? Because he first loved me. That's it. That's all we can say. We don't know why, but he, he apart from the, the, the farthest we can get is... His, the love that he is and that he decided to be towards sinners. Let me go to the um, third heading. I'll be very brief in this. This, is, this. this third heading is, if you want, it gets to the heart of John's imperative, John's, John's most pressing command, what he, what he wants to really urge these believers to do. The love of God in Christ Jesus, says the third heading, calls us to obedience of the command to love our neighbor, the love of God in Christ Jesus calls us to obedience of the command to love our neighbor. You see, love for our neighbor is that mark of a true love for God. If a man says, John, in verse 20, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Can you see? Love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord is inseparable from 
a genuine love for God. The love, if the love of God has been manifested in our hearts, that love that gives us confidence that even in the day of judgment, we are God's people, then we will love each other. If you don't love God, uh, if you, sorry, if you don't love your brother who you cannot see, so who you can see, how can you love God who you have not seen? John, you, you, you can't fool God. You can't have a hatred towards those who you do see and then claim that, well, but somehow I'm able to love the unseen. No, you're, you're only human. And, and this is a, a serious, a weighty, um, weighty exhortation in, in, in light of the fact that, and a weighty rebuke in light of the fact that very often Christians are called to, to dwell in the unseen. Our faith is characterized by the unseen. Our Savior is, as of now, unseen. Our, our God is unseen, of course. Our, 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 our heaven is unseen. Our faith, in many ways, is unseen, if you want. Those spirits is, 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 is unseen. We sometimes sing a hymn and we, we constantly repeat the phrase, I know not why, I know not why, I know not why God's saving grace has been to me made known. I know not why, you know, because there's so much that is unseen about our faith. But here, John says, actually, in this regard, when it comes, John prioritizes the seen, that which we see. Why? Because in this regard, what we see, that which is seen, is so connected to the unseen that we can determine our relationship with the unseen by our relationship with that which we do see. Love for brother and sister in Christ is so connected, so inextricable from a love for God that we can determine if someone has a love for God by whether or not they love their brothers and sisters. This is the command that God calls us to fulfill. This is the great command, verse 21. This is the commandment we have from him. If you love God, love your brothers and sisters in Christ also. Love your, live a life of love also if you love God. This is the one commandment. If, if God's love has truly transformed your heart, then this is the, this is the way you live. You, you live by loving brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to close by just making two applications. And one directly from those last few words I've just said to you. John tells us that lovelessness makes us liars, make you a liar. John is a very, he writes in a very black and white sense, John, from, from much of his epistle. But he, he lets us know that a life of lovelessness, a heart that is not filled with love and Overflowing with love and controlled and dictated by love towards others makes you a liar. And friends, I will say in the context of this, these verses this morning, that love the, a liar, no liar has any part in the kingdom of God. A liar will face the judgment of God. So lovelessness would mean that when we stand before God in the day of judgment, we can't stand boldly. Let me tell you, like, say it like this. If you're a Christian and for whatever reason, for whatever experience of betrayal you've undergone 
in whatever way someone, someone or, or, or people have hurt you. And now you're holding it within and holding it against them. And it is filling you up with hatred. And you've decided that you're going to hate. And, and you've, 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 you've considered that actually, as a Christian, would God want me to hate this person? Would God want me to hate these people? Would God want me to be unforgiven? Would God want me to, um, to slander them? Would God want me to separate from them the way I'm? Would, 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 would God want me to be malicious and, and hold malice towards them? And you're, you've thought of that, but you just feel like it's just too much. I'm, I'm too hurt. I'm, I'm too pained by this. And I'm not in any way wanting to deny the reality of our pain and hurt. And, but I have to, I'm going to say to, to you today from this, these verses, think of what that means for you in the day of judgment. If you try and hold on to hatred, if you try and hold on to the hatred that disconnects you from the love of God, that means you can be bold in the day of judgment. I don't think the Christian can even fathom that kind of reality. I don't think the Christian can even fathom putting themselves in the position where on the day of judgment, the judge the Jesus whose name I've called and praised, the Jesus who I said I loved, the Jesus whose gospel I said I believed, says to me, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. To have done all this and then be a castaway, we are of all men most miserable. Don't let lovelessness Grip your heart and you think that you can get away get away with it. Not from the judge of the universe. Remember, he's a judge. And, oh, friends, our God, the, the, the psalmist says, God knows our frame. He knows we are dust. God is patient with you. God understands that your grief and your pain needs to be addressed. God understands that you need to weep. He understands that you need to talk to someone about it. He understands that you need, to, you, you need this person to, to be sorry for what they've done. And God understands all of that. He understands how much he let you down and the pain you feel. But he still tells you the way for you to be saved from this sorrow you feel is to walk in his love. Let love fill your heart. Let love dictate your next move. Let love control you, whether that means you have to call the person or speak to the person, uh, whether it means you have to change how you, how you, what you, you have to apologize for what you said about the person. Let love let, say, Father, lead me by your spirit of love because I don't belong to those who are passing away with this world. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, worldly, I'm not a worldling. I'm not of this world. I, I belong to the, to the next world and... I have to be bold before him in the day of judgment. And that means I can't condone lovelessness in my life. And the last thing I want to say is a reminder to you that this morning, although we've spoken about the gloriousness of Christian love, we've spoken about it in the context of how love saves us in the day of judgment. This is one thing that is great about the love of our Savior, the love of Jesus Christ that we have known. It will save us in the day of judgment. In the day when we stand before God's righteous judgment, we would be declared righteous. We don't have to be afraid. And I want to invite you, if you don't know this love already, if you're living 
your life and your relationship with God is one that is conditioned, is, is, is based on fear. And let me tell you what fear can look like. Not just the fact that you, you're sometimes afraid when you hear about God. Fear can look like Adam trying to hide from God. You're just trying to hide from him. You're trying to avoid him. And it's, 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 it's evidence of the fear you have because you want to carry on in your sin, but you know your sin is deserving of judgment. And so you try to hide from God and you go to him sometimes, but you, you try and maintain a distance in your relationship. And I'm saying to you, no one can escape from God's all seeing eye. We must all be summoned to the judgment seat. Death is sure. I said judgment is even surer. You know, death is, in that sense, just an usher. Death is just there to usher you into judgment. And the reality of death for the vast majority of humanity should be a reminder to you that we all have to face judgment. And when you stand before God on the day of judgment, how will you be bold before him when you and I both know that we have all sinned and are not worthy to stand before the holy God? How will you stand before him if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ? And let me tell you the beauty of it. The Jesus who judges the world is also the Jesus who died for the world. If you trust him in this world and you trust him to be your savior now, when you stand before him that day, you will know that this is my savior and not and so he's not my judge to condemn me. He's my judge to vindicate me. Would you trust Jesus to wash away your sin? Trust Jesus to deal with this separation between you and God? Well, friends, you know, the world is very, very divided at the moment. Even in churches, this race issue has caused serious division. And we pray for God in many ways to heal our land. But the world is experiencing serious times of division. But you know what I thought? Nothing divides us like the judgment seat of Christ. If something divides us in this world now, it's possible that we reconcile. Even with the race issues, it's, very, it's possible perhaps that, some, that there can be some kind of redress, some kind of compromise, some kind of epiphany that allows people to say, okay, this is what we can do so that we can reconcile. We pray so, but at the judgment seat of Christ, that's a separation that will never be remedied. Some ushered into glory, some ushered into destruction. Sometimes mothers will have to be separated from their children. Sometimes friends will be separated from their friends, brothers from their sisters, siblings from each other, husband from wife. At the judgment seat of Christ, and in the preaching of the gospel, I call you today to choose where you will spend eternity. Will you spend it forever with Jesus Christ? Or will you continue to sin against God so that you fill up your cup of iniquity till the day you have to face his wrath and judgment day? Let me say to you, uh, unbelieving friend, don't be separated from your friend for eternity. Unbelieving mother, don't be separated from your children. Unbelieving husband, don't be separated from your wife from eternity. Choose the Jesus that they have trusted in. Run to him. Look at them. If he saved them, he can certainly save you.
they were just as sinful as you are, just as unworthy as you are. Just They were just as much involved in running away and trying to hide from God as you are. But this Jesus, he saves. He will save you all the step of the way to the day you stand before him in judgment, in boldness and confidence, and can say, I love him because he first loved me. Choose today what will happen with your eternity. Jesus Christ saves life. Amen.